By faith, Daniel. You know, this morning, we're going to take a look at uh, the book of Daniel, but we're primarily going to take a look at who Daniel, along with the three worthies, are. So, who is this man called Daniel? Now, you know, we have a uh, saying at the police department, because we deal with, you know, the public, and we don't always deal with the most upstanding citizens. We have a saying that we say, you know, we can't make this stuff up. Just about the time we think we've seen everything, we see something new that we have never seen before, and it's almost a shocker. Well, if you read the first few chapters of Daniel, you come away thinking, you can't make this stuff up. You know, if I were a Bible skeptic, I would either have one of two things. I would either say it's so bizarre, it can't be true, or... I would say it's so bizarre, it's got to be true. So anyway, let's take a look at uh, Daniel. I'm going to be reading some some scripture here and there, and we're going to kind of unpack it and try to dig down in and find out what it talks about. But right here in Daniel 1, the first couple of uh, verses, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar in the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, and he defeated it. And it's interesting that verse 2 says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, <clears throat> along with some of the articles of, of the house of God. Now, as was the custom, Nebuchadnezzar took these articles into his house, uh, uh, or to the house of his God. Since God gave Judah to Nebuchadnezzar, we can assume that this whole situation was part of God's plan from the very beginning, which I find very interesting. And it's also interesting that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take back some of these Hebrew men that were descendants of the king of Judah. To be, they were no, to be nobles, no blemishes, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing all knowledge and quick to understand, and who had the ability to serve the king of Babylon. They were also to have the ability to learn the languages and literature of their new country. It was as if... Nebuchadnezzar was looking at the very top sliver of the pyramid here. Um, but God all along had in mind to use four of, the, of, those, uh, four of the, the ones that were taken of that group, and they all possessed the attributes that Nebuchadnezzar wanted. But they also possessed honesty, integrity, loyalty, that God considered important. So these chosen men were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So if we go to look and take a look at Daniel 5, it says that the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and the three years of training for them. So at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. 
Well, you can imagine, to eat at the king's table was the most sought-after privilege. I mean, if you stop and think of how many people that were involved that would have loved to have been able to eat at the king's table. And it would have very, been very easy for these four to get used to living that kind of life. And Daniel knew that to sacrifice his lifestyle would mean a compromise in his belief system. These young men were to have three years of training at the best schools that Babylon had to offer to study language, international law, all the while mastering the religion and culture of their new country. This would serve also to rid them of their ties to Judah. That was their former culture, and they also wanted to get them away from the beliefs of their Hebrew God. Now, we don't know the exact ages but they had to be somewhere between maybe 15 and 18 years old. Now, I think back when I was that age, and I'd have to ask myself, could I have been strong enough to make the decisions that they made? Now, to further remove the Hebrew culture from the four, they were given new Babylonian names. In effect, they were given new identities. Now, if we look at verse 8, It says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies. And also, if we go down to verse 11 and 12, it said, Daniel said to the steward, whom uh, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel and his companions, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, I admire Daniel for his approach because his proposal to the steward minimizes the downside uh, for the steward, and it puts everything into God's hands, and that was his whole purpose. In a 10-day trial, the steward really had little to lose. Also, Daniel resolved not to be absorbed into the Babylonian culture to the extent that it may have conflicted with his firm beliefs. He certainly did not want to eat unclean meats or risk having to eat meat that could have been offered to idols. Now, if we go down to verse 15 and 16, it says, At the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacy. Thus, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to uh, drink, and he gave them vegetables. Continually, through this whole process, you can see God leading and using this situation for his purpose. So without God's intervention, we have to ask ourselves, could 10 days really have made that much of a difference in their appearance? And if we go down to verse 17, it says, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God set these four apart from the others. They were a key component in God's plans. So Daniel was rewarded for his, faith, for his faithfulness uh, to holiness by receiving access to the knowledge of God. And these four men were also found to be much superior to any of the musicians and astrologers in the entire realm. In addition to knowledge, God gave them the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
We don't know exactly the number of the Hebrew men that were uh, taken to Babylon, but, you know, you could make a good guess that there was at least 50 or so. And since nothing is mentioned about the others, we can assume that these four were the only ones that remained true to their Hebrew God. So Daniel and his three companions were made to be counselors to the king for several years, uh, after which God's plan begins to unfold. So if we go to Daniel 2, the first couple of verses, it says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. When the king gave the, com- uh, the command to call the musicians and the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream. My spirit is anxious to know the dream. So he knows that he had a dream that's very troubling to him, but when he awoke, he didn't remember exactly what the dream was about. He just knew that it was significant. The Chaldeans considered dreams to be omens of future events, so it was natural for him to seek the interpretation of the dream. Now, it's ironic that Nebuchadnezzar's was named after the pagan god of Nebu, who was the Babylonian god of prophecy. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was not not the best king. He was uh, ruthless. He was uh, in dealing with his subjects. However, God was beginning to work on him to soften his heart, just like he works on every one of us continually. It should be noted that Daniel and the Hebrew worthies were not yet considered to be part of the wise men due to their young age, so they were not brought in front of the king as part of this group to interpret. So if we go again, Daniel 2 and verse 5, it says, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you should be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. Well, that's kind of uh, harsh. So, you know, anyone that knows what a dream is about can interpret it. But if the dream is not known, that's an entirely different situation. And this was a new approach by the king, so the wise men didn't know exactly what to do. But if you go down to verse 9, it says, he says that if you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me his, his interpretation. Apparently, he was not happy with their past performance. Uh, And in verse 11, it says, it is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there's no other, there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not in the flesh. So maybe they weren't very wise to interpret some of those dreams, but at least they were intelligent enough to know that except the gods whose dwelling is not in the flesh were the only ones who could be able to interpret that dream. So if you go to verse 11, it says, For this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So here the king has spoken. The plot thickens. Daniel and the three worthies were not considered old enough to be brought before the king, but they were considered old enough to be included in the group when it was to be killed. So even though Daniel was a relatively young man, he must have had a positive relationship with the king 
as he was allowed to go before him to ask for time to interpret the dream. But in doing so, he was, really, he was risking his life, but he had nothing to lose as his life was on the line anyway. So he was granted some time. Daniel could not interpret the dream, but he served a God who could. Daniel and his companions immediately presented their need to their God in prayer. With their trust in their God, they wait on him, and the dream is revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And what is the immediate reaction of Daniel? If you read it through, it says he praised his God, and he gives all the credit to God, not himself. And we will note through this that Daniel has numerous occasions where he could take credit to build himself up and and also his companions, but he always gives the credit to God. And he always thanks his God in prayer. Then Daniel is brought before the king, and the king asks him a question, and Daniel answers. So if you go to verse uh, Daniel 2 and verse 26, it says, The king answered and said to Daniel, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? So go down in in, uh, uh, verse 30, Daniel says, But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone else living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. And uh, so again, Daniel is not taking credit for what... Uh, he's able to do. He's given his credit to God. And he reflects that glory away from himself, even to the point of saying that he has no more wisdom than any other living being. This was a perfect opportunity for self-exaltation, but Daniel chooses not to do so. In verse 31, it says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its leg of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while the stone was cut off without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer thrashing floors. So we can see a very dramatic thing opening up here. It's interesting to note that the image that Daniel is describing is made of metals of decreasing value from the head of gold down to the feet of iron made of, uh, or down to the feet made of a mixture of iron and clay. We don't uh, also want to overlook this rock that was mentioned that destroys the image that uh, grew into the earth, uh, filling mountains and becomes a kingdom with no end. But we'll learn a little more about that a little bit later. Now, Daniel identifies the head of gold as king Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon lasted for 70 years, and Nebuchadnezzar was ruling for 40 of those years, and he ruled over one of the greatest kingdoms on this earth. With the Babylonian Empire being identified, it gives us a specific starting time for this succession of nations in the prophecy. So if we go on down to verse 39, uh, it says, After you shall rise another kingdom inferior to you, yours, 
He's talking about to Nebuchadnezzar now. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, and inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, that iron that crushes that kingdom will break into pieces and crush all the others. So we see a series of kingdoms being Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. Now, if one looks at each of the history of these nations, it becomes very apparent, looking back, that their history matches each of the places on this image in the dream. Also, later in Daniel, both Medo-Persia and Greece are mentioned by name, so there's little doubt uh, what nations are referred to in that dream. And uh, if we go to verse 45, or 44, it says, And then in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms that will stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke into pieces, the iron, the bronze, and the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God was, has been known to the king what will come to pass. This dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. So, these verses bring us into the days in which we're living, during the final events of this world's history. Shortly before the second coming, the stone we referred to earlier that, that fills the whole earth is the kingdom of God. You'll note that this kingdom of God will stand forever. It will not have an end like earthly kingdoms mentioned in the prophecy. Daniel ends with the statement, that dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Now, an interesting thing happens in verse 46 of Daniel 2. It says, the king fell on his face, prostrate before uh, Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. It was almost as if he was trying to worship Daniel which is interesting. Um, and, you know, Daniel, of course, would have no part of it. But here you can see how God's plan is coming together and how he is using Nebuchadnezzar as the agent to implement that plan. So for the remainder of, of his, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Daniel and his companions are placed in positions of leadership. The result of this is that the people of Babylon are able to learn about the only true God and also gives the Jews an opportunity to be light to those Gentiles. And if you look at verse 3, it's kind of a bizarre thing. And, and you know, that's a good lesson for us. Here is Nebuchadnezzar at one point acknowledging that Daniel's God is the God of all gods and that he would like to follow him. And yet... If you look at verse 3, he builds this image of gold. And uh, it was almost as if that, that he was making an image. Now, he was, it was 90 feet high. And if you might wonder, I wonder if the pride of, the, of his uh, other astrologers and wise men were wounded... And perhaps they wanted to convince Nebuchadnezzar that the entire image, not just the head, represented Babylon. And this could have been the king's way of saying that, that the entire image represented him and his kingdom. And uh, 
it was perhaps his way, his, his uh, uh, pride got in the way, and maybe that was his way of impressing them on the people, and in fact, he was the one that they should bow down and worship. Now, I'm not going to go into this a whole lot because we don't know where Daniel is here, but something happens, and another dilemma faces the three, the three worthies. And, and again, Daniel's not part of it, but nowhere is it mentioned where he might have been. Um, but it would have been, uh, you know, if you go to three, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, that uh, it says, At that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. Because they had put in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar to make this decree that at a certain time, everybody in the realm was to bow down and worship this image of gold. But the three worthies were just as steadfast as uh, Daniel. They didn't have any part of it. They made this comment that said, you know... uh, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, and they have not paid due respect to you. So they, these men were being, being watched and what have you. Um, and then, uh, if you go to 17 and 18, it says that... Uh, they are going to be thrown into a furnace of fire. So they heated this furnace to seven times hotter than normal. It's interesting to note now when these mighty men of valor put the three into the furnace, they were consumed by the fire, just putting them into the furnace. And yet... While they were in there, the king sees a fourth man in the furnace, and he makes an astounding statement, which is in verse 29. He says, look, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And this last part is amazing. It says, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. It's, you know... Really amazing. So then something else happens. It's a little unusual. Rather than sending one of his men, the king of himself goes up to the mouth of the furnace to bid the three worthies to come out and to come forth out of the fire. Completely out of character for a king. And here, the men that put them in there has been consumed, and the three that was in that furnace comes out, and they don't even smell like smoke, and they were not affected by that fire in any way. Then, in verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar speaks, and he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who, uh, servants who trusted him. And um, he finally concedes that there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the three Hebrews are promoted to a higher position. So we know that it's interesting here that chapter 4 was written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. He starts off by declaring how great the kingdom of God is and how knowing this God has affected him. But as time goes by, human nature sets in and he forgets to acknowledge how God leads him 
and how God led him in the past and forgets to attribute his success to God. He begins to take the credit himself. And if we look at uh, chapter four in verse five, uh, chapter four, verse four, it says, "He was at rest." Demuchanezer was flourishing in the palace. I saw a dream and made me afraid, and the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. That's interesting. So he has another dream. This time he remembers what the dream is, but he is anxious to know what it means. Uh, this time, even when the wise people, his, his astrologers and whatever, was told what the dream was about, they don't even attempt to interpret it. So Daniel finally does what he should have done in the first place. He calls Daniel to interpret it. And in verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. And Daniel answered, O oh my Lord, the dream concerns those who hate I, I may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concerns your enemy. So he lets him know what the interpretation of the dream is. He says he saw a tree that grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, which could be seen by all on earth. And he's talking about how great this kingdom was that uh, he had. And it goes on down and says that uh, you shall drive, uh, they shall drive you from men, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. So the dream refers not just to Nebuchadnezzar, but also to the kingdom. Now, seven times in this chapter, it states that God is the one who rules his kingdom and that he appoints, he appoints and makes, uh, uh, takes down kings. So Nebuchadnezzar has a warning that that could happen, and yet, as a result of being uh, you know, blessed by God, he didn't appreciate what he had, and he has to be like an animal in the field for seven years. This must have seemed impossible to him. How could this happen to this, this king? Because Babylon reached its zenith of power. The city of, ba of Babylon comprised an area of 13 miles long by 10 miles wide. Just imagine that. From here down to Chico. And it was surrounded by a wall 50 feet thick. And it had temples, it had hanging gardens, it had a, it had a lavish palace. It had everything. In fact, the, the, the hanging garden was considered one of the then seven wonders of the earth at that time. Um, and, you know, there's such a contrast between what he was like and now he's an animal. And why do you think Nebuchadnezzar was not overthrown during this? You think they didn't have a functioning king. He was out eating grass like uh, oxen or what have you. But Nebuchadnezzar finally, and why do you think that he finally uh, brings himself back to reality? If you look at, at uh, verse 34, and it says that Nebuchadnezzar says, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes 
to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. So this once proud tyrannical king became a humble person and now he ruled over the kingdom and how he ruled changed. He was now a man of God and he remained so for the rest of his life. You know, sometimes it takes just a little tickle with a feather to get our attention and sometimes God has to hit us on the side of the head with a two-by-four. So, at any rate, you know, there are just many, many things we could go on and on and on about how God orchestrated all this, how God led all of this, and then we come to Daniel 5. And I'm not a linguist, but I believe that this saying that we've all heard, the handwriting is on the wall. I've got to believe that's attributed to what happened. Again, you can't make this stuff up. So the king, then it was uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, that is believed, to, Belshazzar believed to be his grandson. So he throws a festival, and after everybody drinks a lot of wine, something happens. He decides that he's going to take those vessels that we learned about right in the first couple of verses of chapter 1, and he's going to bring them out, and they're going to use them to drink the wine. Now, these had been consecrated to God's purpose, not for some drunken party at a festival around the king's table. So what happens next is... Again, almost unbelievable. It's this bloodless hand appears writing words on the wall. <clears throat> and at that point, I have to think that they looked at that and they had to decide one of two things. Do we ask for more wine or do we say no more? That's enough. Because I'm sure that that was quite a shocker. I can imagine what it would have been like for any of us that would have been in that particular situation. Uh, <clears throat> now... He calls his uh, people in, but there's no Daniel, because at that point, Daniel had probably come into disfavor and was retired from public service because his approach was not compatible with uh, uh, Belshazzar's. But Belshazzar's grandmother, the queen mother, uh, decides she knows about Daniel. So she goes in to... Belshazzar, and suggests that he get Daniel to interpret it, which happens. And Daniel is given the vision of what this means, but he doesn't hold back any words. He tells Belshazzar very clearly that God's judgment is upon Babylon and as a result of his disregard for the light that was given him about the God of heaven. And that this judgment was further because of self-gratification. So there was really a riddle that was involved in this handwriting that was on the wall, but the bottom line was, Daniel says to Belshazzar, your kingdom is to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, And if you look at uh, uh, verse 30, It says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. So it didn't take very long for God's word to come true. In fact, there was a uh, 
local contemporary historian that wrote that Cyrus of Medo-Persia entered Babylon via the riverbed of the dried up Euphrates River. Now hundreds of years prior, and I didn't know this, but I did some research here. It says an Assyrian queen of Nineveh built a summer palace upstream from Babylon. She also had slaves hollow out a man-made lake which was fed by the Euphrates River. And after her death, the summer palace was forgotten and the lake dried up over time. But Cyrus had his engineers dig a channel from the Euphrates, Euphrates River to this old lake bed, and he diverted the waters from the Euphrates River, which caused it to dry up downstream. And that allowed Cyrus to enter Babylon via the gates where the Euphrates River flowed through the city. So Cyrus conquered the city, and Belshazzar was killed while he was in his drunken stupor. That was the end of the Babylonian Empire. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, and the head of gold is now gone. With the dead, uh, death of uh, Darius several years later, Cyrus becomes king. <clears throat> and uh, briefly going through, because we're running out of time here, but um, in verse, or chapter 6 and verse 3, it says, Daniel distinguished himself among all the others, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Now, Daniel had been the third in order of the rule of Babylon, but here is a country that has taken them over, has conquered them. It's unheard of that one of the current government officials, or the former government officials, would be allowed in the government of the current, uh, current government. And that's just unheard of. And you can imagine... That first of all, the leaders of the old government would usually put to death so they couldn't cause any problem. But uh, Daniel had a reputation, and uh, it carried forward. It's just, again, you can't make this stuff up. Just imagine what the other government officials felt. Here's Daniel, who was a leftover from the previous re uh, regime, and the king is giving consideration of putting him over everyone, putting him over them. So human nature comes forward. It's interesting to note that the other uh, governors could find no fault with Daniel, but it's even more interesting that they recognized that the only way they could charge him would be considering the law of his God, because they knew how faithful he was. So they approached Darius and told him that they wanted to make sure that all of his subjects would be made aware of his power and majesty, and that he should be able to, to order everyone at a certain time to worship him. Um, now, the decree could not be reversed. And what the decree was that in a 30, I believe it was a 30-day period, that no one could worship any other person, God, except the king. And uh, Daniel was very much aware of this, but he did not alter his habits. He began to pray as he always did. And there were some government officials that were, were assembled to trap him, and the trap snapped shut on Daniel. And when they went to the king and explained what had happened, then the king 
realize that he had been trapped, that they were after Daniel all along. But Daniel is put into the lion's den, okay? And the king was very troubled about what he had to do to Daniel, but it was apparent that his faith in, in Daniel's God was able to be delivered because in 6.16 it says, so the king gave the command and brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke to Daniel saying, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. So he had faith that Daniel was going to be fine. Um, and while the king has a very sleepless night, Daniel is in the den of lions having a lovely conversation with his guardian angel, right? And the next morning, again, out of character, the king doesn't send someone else to check on Daniel. He runs down there himself to check on him. And once again, very much out of character. Um, and in verse 20, it says... Um, and when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel says, O king, live forever. So again, Daniel proves once again his unwavering, relative, uh, his unwavering, uh, devotion to his God and steadfast in his, will, his witness to his enemies. It's very obvious to Daniel what the other uh, government officials are trying to do. But Daniel makes such a positive impression on Darius, which carried over to the reign of Cyrus. Later, because of this influence, Cyrus gave favorable treatment to the Jewish people. So again, all part of God's plan. Um, and at the end here, it's interesting, on verse 26, it says, so Darius makes another decree, but this is very different than the other decrees. It says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel is so upset with the other government officials that put him into this situation, he has them thrown into the lion's den. And uh, uh, Herodias indicates in his writings that they had accused the king of feeding the lions before he put Daniel in there, and that's why Daniel was spared. But guess what <laughs> happens when they hit that bottom of that lion's den? They are totally consumed. Now, you know, there's a lot more that's contained in the book of Daniel, but if you look at what we've seen and what we looked at so far, that there is Daniel and the three worthies have absolute undeniable faith in their God. They never compromise, okay? Uh, Daniel's Hebrew name means God is judge. Now, Daniel was from Judah, but he spends most of his life in Babylon. He's from the tribe of Judah, but he was of royal birth. 
and was of royal birth. During his lifetime, he was a statesman, he was a prophet, and a prime minister of both the Babylonian and the Persian empires. Throughout his entire life, he never wavered in his belief in his Hebrew God. He was also true to the teachings of, his, of the healthful living given to him in his short life as a Judean. He always gives praise to God rather than to himself. He was a humble person, and he never fell to the temptation of building himself up rather than giving credit to God. He is only one of two persons in scriptures that are presented as being without fault. So I have a challenge for all of us today, okay? Especially myself. I want to dare to be like Daniel. By faith, Daniel did everything. Not just when it was convenient, not just some of the time, but he was faithful in everything he did. And my prayer this morning is that we might be as faithful as Daniel. Dear Heavenly Father, you know, this entire worship service this morning has been about faith and being faithful to you, about what you have for us, about what you continually give to us, how much you care for us, how much you love us. And dear Father, in return for that, I would pray that we might always be faithful to you. You know, as we study about the life of Daniel, it's apparent to us what he was like. And here we are thousands of years later, but we know that he was faithful. And that affects us and our ability to open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit to be faithful to you too. I would ask that you go with each of us as we go in peace. Amen.